Well, let's turn our attention now to God's Word, uh, preaching of God's Word. Uh, I, from what I understand, uh, you'll have uh, your pastor uh, next next week, from what I understand, and so uh, it may be a while until I see you, maybe one of the fifth Sunday nights, that's fine, I uh, hope to see you there, but uh, I've enjoyed being with y'all these last six months, uh, the times that we've been together, and uh, I believe in the communion of saints, we just said in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in that, and uh, I believe we've had that together, so I thank you for that. Let's turn our attention to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, if you have your Bible, join me there, please. John chapter 17, we'll read verses 1 through 19, but we'll be looking today specifically at verses 6 through 19. Verses 6 through 19. And just to give you a little bit of context, it's the night before the cross. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room. They are having the... the Last Supper, as it's called, or the First Lord's Supper. And they are around the table. And Jesus, it says here in verse 1, and Jesus spoke these words. Well, these words are chapters 13 through 16. Because chapters 13 through 16, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of things said by Jesus. But again, it's all reclining around the table in the upper room. That's, and that's more than likely still where they are. Uh, around that table in the upper room. And he gives his last instructions to his disciples. And then he turns and lifts his eyes to heaven. There, again, they're sitting, they're reclining around the table, and he lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays his prayer, which is John chapter 17. And of course, his disciples are sitting there and they're, they're listening and they're hearing it. And if their eyes are open, like it seems like Jesus' eyes were, they're watching at the same time. And Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his 11 disciples, and he prays for all believers for all times. And we're going to look specifically at the verses of 6 through 19 today, where he's focusing more on a prayer for his 11 disciples. But that prayer for his 11 disciples is, is as well a prayer for, for, for every believer. So we want to glean, what we, we're going to glean uh, three points today that I'll talk about in just a minute from verses 6 to 19. So let's give our attention to God's holy, inspired, and errant, infallible word, our only rule of faith and practice, beginning in verse 1 for context of chapter 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world, they were yours, you have kept them, gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and that they have believed that you have sent me. 
I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. <coughs> Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, now again, as we as we come to the preaching of your word, we recognize that again we are those that need help. And you say in your word that you are a very present help. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. You say in your word. And we need help. And so come and help us by the Holy Spirit. Give us the ability to concentrate and focus. And Lord, more than anything, give us the illumination of your Holy Spirit that we might, we might understand and comprehend and hear your voice speaking to us through the word preached. And that you would be pleased to add your blessing upon it to every heart here. And Father, just make this time profitable for, for all the souls that are here. Would you do that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had somebody just stop on the spot and, and, and pray for you? Yeah. Isn't that encouraging? Uh, I had a, I was filling in at another church down towards Columbia last week. And after the service, I was talking to one of the elders and he said, I'm just going to pray for you right now. He prayed for me right, right, right in front of the back door before I left. Now it was just so encouraging. And I, I see a few heads nodding. Nodding, you've had that happen as well. Uh, you know, Jesus here, again, is more than likely in the upper room still with his disciples. And he prays out loud for them. Now how encouraging that must have been for them. They didn't know what was getting ready to happen. You know, it, it, it would, they would, in a short period of time, they would get up from the table, they would go into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would be betrayed, arrested, and the whole dark night before the cross, you know, will happen. But he prays for them out loud. How encouraging that must have been. And there are a few things here that we want to concentrate on in his prayer for his disciples. Because it is also by extension a prayer for, for you as a believer, everyone who has believed on the Lord Jesus. And there are three truths that we want to focus on here in verses 6 through 19. The first is the great privilege that we have to be children of God, to those, to those that know Jesus and save him as they were great privilege that we have, the fruit, some of the fruits of a 
true child of God. It's the second thing we want to look at. And then thirdly, that Jesus ensures that we remain children of God. So we want to look at this, these verses here through these three headings. The first would be the great privilege to be a child of God, to be, to be saved. We look down here at verse 6, and Jesus prays to his heavenly Father. He says, I've manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. You see this yours language. This, this God, God the Father gave certain people, which are, which are believers, to Jesus. And it reminds me very much of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Where Paul writes, just as he chose us, he's writing this to the Ephesian church, Ephesian believers, just as he, that is God, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, having been predestined to us to, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And we're reminded here in Jesus' prayer that before all time, and Jesus reminds us by what he says in the prayer, before all time, God the Father and God the Son had a plan to save a certain people. And they, and this is in love, it says here in Ephesians 1 verse 4, in love having predestined us to adoption according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of of the glory of his grace. It's for God's praise, for God's glory that they have a certain people. And it's nothing to do with, with what we have done or not done. The, the, the choosing for before the foundation of the world wasn't like God looked down through a tunnel of time and said, oh, I see they're going to do this and they're going to be good like this. And so, okay, I'll, I'll pick them. That wasn't it at all. Oh, no. We know this from Ephesians 2 and chapter 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of anything that you did or, or I did, lest anyone should boast. And you were given, if you're a believer, you were given to Jesus for him to save. We see that here in verse 6 again. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. And Jesus worked his Holy Spirit in your heart to bring you to a second knowledge of yourself. Look at what he says in verse 6. I have manifested, I have revealed your name to the men you have given me out of the world. God takes his Holy Spirit and he opens up our minds and our hearts, which are dead, and makes them alive through his Holy Spirit. He makes us, he brings us from a state of being spiritually dead to a state of spirit, being spiritually alive through his Holy Spirit regenerating us, coming down and literally touching us and changing us. Isn't that, isn't that the wonder of all wonders? That the God of this universe who created every single jot and tittle of the far corners of this universe would reach down and touch you. And not just touch you, but change you. Regenerate you. He would reveal God to you. And he would apply his saving benefits of what he did on the cross to you specifically. 
and that Ephesians 2.19 would be true of you. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let me give you a couple points of application and we'll move on. The first would be that that, that you and I did nothing. If, you, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you come to the saving knowledge of Christ, we didn't do anything to get it. It was a free gift and Paul calls it a free gift. And uh, Jesus actually in another place in the Gospel of John calls it a gift. When he's talking to the woman at the well, he calls it a gift. And you just receive in my faith. It's given. Hmm. What it ought to do is it ought to humble us. It ought to humble us. It ought to amaze us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We sing that hymn. But amazing really is the word. It really is. Why me? You know, you think of that Chris Christopherson song, Why Me, Lord? It's a pretty good story, by the way, if you Google on YouTube, Why Me, Lord, and look up the story behind it, and he explains the story behind the song. That's <clears throat> what he's doing, he's saying, Why Me, Lord? What did I ever do? I can't remember the exact words of the song. You know the song I'm talking about. The second point of application would, would be, uh, there are those that would say, you know, it's, it's not fair for God to choose some and, and not choose others. And I, I want to briefly touch on this because it's a, it's a common objection. And I actually experienced this objection in the last couple of months with someone in my family that I'm praying for, praying for and it's my aunt. And I'm going to ask you to pray for my aunt. Her name is Elaine. And she is 84. And she doesn't know the Lord Jesus. And I came and talked to her in an assisted living facility back in, October, back in October. She lives in North Carolina. And uh, she said, I talked to her about, uh, about the Lord and, and about saving faith and so forth and, and about through Jesus. And she said, she said, I just can't bring myself to believe that the Lord would not, you know, bring uh, these people in these other religions uh, to himself through these other religions. And then about that time, we discussed it a little bit, but I got interrupted by some of the workers, so I need to make a follow-up visit to, to talk to her about this. I did quote her John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Of course, I don't know how much more clear you know, it can be said than what Jesus said it right there. But the point is, her objection was, you know, essentially her objection was, it's not fair that only through Jesus that we can find salvation and that God would choose some and not others. And I want to briefly just read you Paul's response to this objection. In Romans chapter 9, verse 14, he says, What should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God somehow not fair or not? perfectly holy and how he does things? Certainly not, he says. <clears throat> well, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. It's quoting, it's quoting uh, in Exodus 33 passage there. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, 
not a, it's not according to works or how good we are or whatever, but of God who shows mercy. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? And Paul's saying, well, if you come to me and say and object and say, well, how can God find fault with me because he didn't choose me? He's answering this right here. Verse 20, Romans 9. But indeed, O man, whom, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? You see, folks, uh, the, the, the fair thing to do would, would be, if we're, if we're going to talk about fair, ultimately the fair thing is that God would save nobody. But I'm glad God didn't do what's fair. Because I wouldn't be standing here as someone who believes in the Lord Jesus. I don't want what's fair. I want grace. Right? Glad he didn't give me what was fair. God loves all mankind. God, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to save anyone from their sins. And salvation is freely offered to all, but it is applied with the Holy Spirit. Only those that are enabled to believe upon Jesus Christ. And let me just end because we're getting to move on by saying, you know, Deuteronomy 29 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. There are, there are certain things that we are to peer only so far into, and that verse tells us and reminds us, uh, you know, God is God. The Romans 9 verses remind us too. God is God, and we're not. So let's let's let God be God, and let's fall, fall down and worship Him, and, and say, Lord, You are righteous and holy, even in some ways when I may not quite understand it. And I'll I'll I'll, I'll end at that point with that point. So let's move on to the second point, and, and that is that uh, the, the well, first of all, the, the great privilege to be saved to be a child of God. Secondly, that we are reminded of the fruit of of true salvation. Some of the fruits of true salvation. Let me make one final comment uh, that's coming to my mind about the last point. But you see, I'm not giving up on my on my aunt. I, she's 84. I'm praying for her. I'm praying for her salvation every single day. I'm not giving up just because she rejected the gospel message doesn't mean I'm not going to go back and try again because I am, and I'm going to keep praying for her, right? And I'm going to wait until uh, you know the day that she dies uh, before I uh, figure out potentially where she might be or not be. Right. So uh, <clears throat> it's in God's hands, but I'm still praying that He will save her. Let's move to point two. It reminds us some of the, of the, some of the fruits of true salvation. And there are three things I want to mention here. Not all the fruits. We're not talking about Galatians five fruits of the Spirit necessarily here. But these are other fruits of salvation. He reminds us first of all that a believer is going to, a true believer is going to believe that Jesus is fully God. If we look down here at verse 8, at the, at the second part of verse 8, and he says that, uh, let's look at the whole verse. For I've given to them the words you've, you've given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They've known with certainty. He says that these disciples knew that Jesus came from God and was sent 
by God. And the logic is this. Jesus came from God. He was with God before he was incarnate and became a baby on earth. He was with God before he came from God. Therefore, he is God. Now, before they doubted, before these disciples doubted, but now he says they believe with certainty. They believe with certainty. And why is this so important that, that people believe that Jesus is fully God? Not 99% God, not 75% God, but 100% God. Why is it so important? It's because Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 24, he says to the Pharisees, he says, unless you believe that I am he, unless you believe that I am the great I am, Exodus 3, where God says I am who I am, He's, and he's, he says, he's, uh, Jesus says to the Pharisees, unless you believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. That's what he says, John 8, verse 24. And the only way that someone can believe with certainty, the way he says that the disciples here did, is the Holy Spirit coming into their hearts and enabling, them, enabling their hearts and their minds to believe with certainty. And of course, that is a sign of someone being converted truly true believer because the Holy Spirit has actually enabled them to believe like this. And we don't have that unless we have salvation because salvation is includes the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and changing us and enlightening our minds. And so we have to ask ourselves, you know, do I truly believe that Jesus was 100% God through and through? Ask ourselves if we truly believe that. Second uh, fruit here would be that we believe if the Bible is 100% God's word through and through. If we look down here at verse 7, Jesus says, Now they have known that all the things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me. Jesus' words are truly God's words. He received his words from God the Father, and therefore his words were God's words. Of course, he was himself God, and so what he would say was God's word, literally. Everything he taught them was God's word. It was God speaking in the flesh. So the, his, when his voice box actuated and the words came out, it was literally God's words, because he was God. And the logic is pretty clear if you think about it. But see, before they doubted, before they doubted that his words were God's words, but now they believe with certainty. What about the rest of the Bible? Okay, we've got Jesus' words, but what about the rest of the Bible? Well, Peter, Peter addresses that in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, where he says, know, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And what Peter, Peter you notice he uses the word scripture, he uses the word scripture, and we know from the well, use of the word scripture that that includes the entire New Testament, and there are other verses that I could give you to, to, to point that out another time, but it certainly includes the entire Old Testament. Because when Peter wrote this, these words, not much of the New Testament had been written yet. And so it includes the all 66 books of the Bible. And the prophecy here 
would include the the uh, uh, the Old Testament uh, prophets as well as the New Testament apostles and their contemporaries that wrote the Bible. And you have to ask, have to ask ourselves, you know, do I truly believe that every single jot and tittle of God's of the Bible is God's word. Well, my aunt would say no, because when I quoted John 14, verse 6, she rejected that. And I have to ask you, do you believe that every single part of it is God's word, even parts that you may not understand or you struggle to, to you struggle with? There are some parts of God's word that, uh, that I would, particularly in Isaiah, that that I would stand up here, and I believe it's God's word through and through, but I would, I would, I would blush when I read them because they're graphic, some graphic language there. But I still believe it's God's word, right? So we have to ask ourselves, is that where, is that where I'm at today? And why is this so important? Because, because in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, Paul writing to the Thessalonian Christians, he says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And what he was saying there to, to the Thessalonian Christians is this, you, you, you're a true believer, and therefore you believe that what we give you truly is the word of God because you had the Holy Spirit coming into your heart and your mind that enable you to believe. And so it's just another uh, it's another sign, I would say, uh, pointing to someone being a true believer, that they truly believe. They have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit within them that the Bible truly is the word of God through and through. And the third and final Third and final fruit here that's in these verses that we want to talk about is obeying God's word to the glory of God. We look down here at verse 6, and at this last part of verse 6, Jesus says about his disciples, and they have kept your word. They have kept God's word. And then we look down here at verse 10, at the end of verse 10, and he says, I am glorified in them. I am glorified in them. He's saying that, that these disciples that I'm praying for right here have kept God's word and therefore they have glorified me in keeping God's word. They have heard the word, but they are doers of the word. Now, let's back up a second. Uh, let's back up a second and look at chapter 16, a couple verses before. Chapter 16 and verse 31. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples. This is like a minute or two before this, okay? Verse 31 of chapter 16. Jesus answered them, he's talking to his disciples, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, now, now has come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. And then in verse 6, he says, and they have kept your word. In chapter, at the end of chapter 16, he's saying, hey guys, y'all are getting ready to leave me high and dry. We're going into the Garden of Gethsemane, 
here in a few minutes, and y'all gonna, gonna run off and leave me. But then a couple minutes later, he's praying his prayer, and he says, they've kept your word. What do we make of this? What do we see here? We see the great love of the Lord Jesus for his people. He's, he knows how weak we are in our faith. He knows that we will fail. Like his 11, he knew his 11 disciples were going to fail in just a few minutes. But yet he says that they and all believers will obey God's word and glorify him. Bear with me now as I read this quote. I'm going to read you a quote from J.C. Ryle. I'm not typically one to read long quotes, but this one is so good and so rich and so uplifting and encouraging. I'm not going to try to paraphrase it. And if you want the link, I'll let me know and I'll email you the link where you can read it again. Listen to what he says. These are wonderful words. He's speaking here of Jesus and what he says here in verses 6 through 10. These are wonderful words when we consider the character of the 11 men to whom they were applied. How weak was their faith, how slender their knowledge, how shallow their spiritual attainments, how faint their hearts in the hour of danger. Yet a very little time after Jesus spoke these words, they all forsook him and fled, and one of them denied him three times with an oath. No one can read the four Gospels with attention and fail to see that never had a great master such weak servants as Jesus had in the eleven apostles. Yet these very weak servants were the men of whom the gracious head of the church speaks here in high and honorable terms. The lesson before us here is full of comfort and instruction. It is evident that Jesus sees far more in his believing people than they see in themselves or than others see in them. The least degree of faith is very precious in his sight. Though it be no bigger than a grain of mustard seed, it is a plant of heavenly growth and makes a boundless difference between the possessor of it and the man of the world. Wherever the gracious Savior of sinners sees true faith in himself, however feeble, he looks with compassion on many weaknesses and passes by many defects. It was even so with the eleven apostles. They were weak and unstable as water, but they believed and loved their master. The true servant of God should mark well the feature in Christ's character which is here brought out and rest his soul upon it. The best among us must often see in himself or herself a vast amount of defects and weaknesses and must feel ashamed of his poor attainments in religion. I relate to that. Listen to what he finishes up and says. Uh, but do, do we simply believe in Jesus? Do we cling to him and roll all our burdens on him? Can we say with sincerity and truth, as Peter said afterwards, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. That was after Peter was restored, after he denied Jesus three times. Then let us take comfort in the words of Christ before us and not give way to being downcast. The Lord Jesus did not despise these eleven because of their feebleness, but bore with them and saved them to the end because they believed. And he never changes what he did for them. He will do for us. The great privilege of being a child of God, the fruit of a child of God, some of the fruits, and then the last point here is that he reminds us 
that he ensures that we remain children of God. Look down here at verse 9. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine. You see the language of ownership here? The language of ownership. Yours, mine, yours, mine. You see, we're taught here that, that all believers are literally owned by God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, Paul would write in another place. You don't own yourself, and I don't own myself. And Paul would call himself a bondservant of Christ because that's what he was, and that's what you are if you've come to the Lord Jesus in faith. I want to be a servant. I want to be a slave of Christ. That's a good place to be. That's where we want to be, right? You know, you don't own yourself. You know, uh, a couple years ago, I bought a car, and I got a loan. I got a car loan for the car. And the title, of course, for the car was at the bank. I didn't own the car. I was making payments on the car. The bank owned the car. The bank had the title in hand. Now, I paid off the car, and then I got the title. At that point, when I had the title in hand, I owned the car. And here's the lesson. Jesus paid for your sin debt on the cross. He paid your debt fully. And therefore, the title to your soul is in his hands. It's in his hands. He holds the title. You don't hold the title. I don't want to hold them. I don't want to hold the title. Right? He holds the title to your soul. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Paul would write. And... <clears throat> And he reminds us here that we actually have a fam the family name, the, the name of the family of God written on us. He says here, keep them, keep through your name those you have given me. Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. You actually have the family name on you. In fact, Revelation 22 says that God's name is written on your forehead. Romans, Revelation 22, verse 4. Now, you say, what about Judas? Judas has been referred to here in these verses, and we need to briefly, hit, briefly cover that. Did Jesus fail? Did, Jesus, did Judas slip through the cracks? Did Jesus say, ooh, one got away? No, that's not what happened here. Let's look down here at verse 12. Look what he says here in, at the end of verse 12. And none of them is lost. He's talking about the disciples. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. The word perdition there means destruction, the son of destruction. And why did Jesus say this? Why did Jesus say this in his prayer? That's the question. And it was for this reason. He wanted to encourage his disciples, the 11 that were there. By this time, Judas had left the scene. Judas had got up and left when Jesus prays his prayer. He wants to encourage the 11 because in less than an hour or somewhere around an hour, they would be in the garden and Judas would betray Jesus. 
And imagine the thoughts that the disciples would have. This guy's been with us for three years. We've been living with this guy, going to ministry for three years, day in and day out. Surely he's saved. What happened? And the temptation is to say, okay, uh, if, if this could happen to Judas, could it happen to me? Well, I'll make it. And notice what Jesus says, though, at the end of verse 7, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And we won't turn there, but in John 13, he, he, he says, he quotes Psalm 41 in verse 9 in, in reference to Judas to say that he who has he, he broken bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And he's saying, hey, look, this, this whole thing, he's saying to his disciples, this whole thing about Judas was part of God's plan and it was it was foretold in Psalm 41 verse 9 a long time ago. This is nothing new here. This is not a surprise. I didn't have one slip through the cracks. <coughs> he says it, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas was never chosen. He had never believed on the Lord Jesus. And so he is called the son of destruction here. You know, when you think about it, someone might be able to make the argument, the decent argument that Peter, that Peter did a Benedict Arnold on Judas, on Jesus just as much as Judas did. That Peter turns back on Jesus just as much as Judas did. Somebody can make that argument. But you see, Jesus tells, Jesus tells Peter in Luke chapter 22 when they're sitting around the table, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. You see, the reason why Peter didn't slip through the cracks is because Jesus was holding him and wouldn't let him slip through the cracks, even though he failed miserably. And so it is with us. I have given them eternal life, and no one can snatch them out of my hands, Jesus says in John chapter 10. You see, if you've come to the Lord Jesus in faith, you're going to fail at times, and I'm going to fail. And sometimes we might fail miserably, like Peter did. But you see, you're, you're held in the hands of Jesus. Jesus has got you like this. Jesus has got the title of your soul, and he saves to the uttermost, Hebrews 7 tells us. He saves 100%, not 99.9999%. You're held in the palm of his hands. Didn't we just sing that a minute ago? Redeemed, though through his infinite mercy, his child and forever I am. Can't, you can't slip out of his hands. You see, because Jesus 
all out. What is the result here? Is because the result of all this should be a lot of thought, of course, but if you look down at verse 13, it says, Jesus says, And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's saying here in verse 13, I'm speaking these things right now, and he knew John would be writing them down, so that so that 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 uh, that, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The, the purpose of these words is that you would have joy. And I pray that you would, that you would come out of this service and you would have joy because of these truths. That's what Jesus says. He said them for you. I pray that you will. And I pray that you will be sure that you know the Lord Jesus in a saving way. We're reminded here of the great privilege to be saved, to be a children, a child of God. Some of the fruits of a child of God and that he remains, he ensures that we remain his children, regardless of how bad we fail. Let me close by reading two verses from him, How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent what more can he say than to you he has said? To you who have for refuge to Jesus have fled. The soul that on Jesus still leans for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. If you have concerns about where you're at today with the Lord Jesus, I would say simply this. The scripture simply says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Plain and simple. We must repent. We must turn from our sins. We must turn to Jesus. Throw ourselves completely on him. Knowing that he is our only hope. And receive him in faith. And I encourage you to do that if you never have or if you wonder if you ever have today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for praying this prayer. We thank you for inspiring John to write it down in such great detail. We thank you, Lord, that you meant it for our teaching, but also for our encouragement. Lord, we relate, at least I sure do, to Peter in our failures, in our weaknesses, in our, our inability to live out the Christian life the way that we know we're supposed to and we want to. But the, this is the same, this is the same way these eleven disciples were. And yet you saved them. And you held the title to their souls and you still do for that matter. And yet and we are too no different than them. And so, Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone listening today that may not know you in a saving way, that they would repent and turn to you and receive you in faith, and that they would come to know the joy that you speak of here in this in one of these last verses of a saving knowledge of Jesus. And, Lord, I pray that for those that do know you, that they would be encouraged, that they would 
being built up and that they would walk out of here, Lord, with their hearts lifted up high, realizing the grace that they enjoy, that we enjoy, and that we know, and it's been simply given to us as a free gift. We are blessed, Lord, beyond measure, and may we know that deep in our gut and be encouraged. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's respond to the preaching of God's word by singing verses 1, 3, and 5 of hymn 642. 642.